Section 60 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 60. After. My darling, said the Comtesse, you might go to bed. The three children, two girls and a boy, rose and kissed their grandmother. Then they said good night to Monsieur le Curé, who had dined at the Chateau, as was his custom every Thursday. The Abbe Mauduit lifted two of the children on his knees, passing his long arms, clad in black, round their necks, and kissing them tenderly on the forehead as he drew their heads toward him as a father might. Then he set them down on the ground, and the little beings went off, the boy ahead and the girls following. "'You are fond of children, Monsieur le Curé,' said the Comtesse. "'Very fond, madame.' The old woman raised her bright eyes toward the priest. "'And has your solitude never weighed too heavily on you?' "'Yes, sometimes.' He became silent, hesitated, and then added, "'But I was never made for ordinary life.' "'What do you know about it?' "'Oh, I know very well. I was made to be a priest. I followed my vocation.' The Comtesse kept staring at him. "'Come now, Monsieur le Curé, tell me this. Tell me how it was you resolved to renounce forever all that makes the rest of us love life, all that consoles and sustains us. What is it that drove you, impelled you, to separate yourself from the great natural path of marriage and the family?' You are neither an enthusiast nor a fanatic, neither a gloomy person nor a sad person. Was it some incident, some sorrow, that led you to take life vows? The Abbe Mauduit arose and approached the fire. Then, holding toward the flame his big shoes, such as country priests generally wear, he seemed still hesitating as to what reply he should make. He was a tall old man with white hair, and for the last twenty years had been pastor of the parish of Saint Antoine de Rocher. The peasant said of him, There's a good man for you, and indeed he was a good man benevolent, friendly to all, gentle, and, to crown all, generous. Like St. Martin, he would have cut his cloak in two. He laughed readily and wept also, on slight provocation, just like a woman, which prejudiced him more or less in the hard minds of the country folk. The old Comtesse de Seville, living in retirement in her chateau of Rocher, in order to bring up her grandchildren, after the successive deaths of her son and her daughter-in-law, was very much attached to her curé, and used to say of him, "'What a heart he has!' He came every Thursday to spend the evening with the Comtesse, and they were close friends, with the frank and honest friendship of old people. She persisted. Look here, Monsieur le Curé, it is your turn now to make a confession. He repeated, I was not made for ordinary life. I saw it fortunately in time, and I have had many proofs since then that I made no mistake on the point. My parents, who were mercers in Verdiers, and were quite well-to-do, had great ambitions for me. They sent me to a boarding school while I was very young. No one knows what a boy may suffer at school through the mere fact of separation, of isolation. This monotonous life without affection is good for some and detestable for others. Young people are often more sensitive than one supposes, and by shutting them up thus too soon, far from those they love, we may develop to an exaggerated extent a sensitiveness which is overwrought and which may become sickly and dangerous. I scarcely ever played, I had no companions. I passed my hours in homesickness, I spent the whole night weeping in my bed. I sought to bring before my mind recollections of home, trifling memories of little things, little events. I thought incessantly of all I had left behind there. I became almost imperceptibly an oversensitive youth to whom the slightest annoyances were terrible griefs. In this way, I remained taciturn, self-absorbed, without expansion, without confidence. This mental excitement was going on secretly and surely. The nerves of children are quickly affected, and one should see to it that they live a tranquil life until they are almost fully developed. But who ever reflects that, for certain boys, an unjust imposition may be as great a pang as the death of a friend in later years? Who can explain why certain young temperaments are liable to terrible emotions for the slightest cause, 
and may eventually become morbid and incurable. This was my case. The faculty of regret developed in me to such an extent that my existence became a martyrdom. I did not speak about it, I said nothing about it, but gradually I became so sensitive that my soul resembled an open wound. Everything that affected me gave me painful twitchings, frightful shocks, and consequently impaired my health. Happy are the men whom nature has buttressed with indifference and armed with stoicism. I reached my sixteenth year. An excessive timidity had arisen from this abnormal sensitiveness. Feeling myself unprotected from all the attacks of chance or fate, I feared every contact, every approach, every current. I lived as though I were threatened by an unknown and always expected misfortune. I did not venture either to speak or do anything in public. I had, indeed, the feeling that life is a battle, a dreadful conflict in which one receives terrible blows, grievous mortal wounds. In place of cherishing, like all men, a cheerful anticipation of the morrow, I had only a confused fear of it, and felt in my own mind a desire to conceal myself to avoid that combat in which I would be vanquished and slain. As soon as my studies were finished, they gave me six months' time to choose a career. A very simple occurrence showed me clearly, all of a sudden, the diseased condition of my mind, made me understand the danger, and determined me to flee from it. Verdiers is a little town surrounded with plains and woods. In the central street stands my parents' house. I now passed my days, far from the dwelling which I had so much regretted, so much desired. Dreams had reawakened in me, and I walked alone in the fields in order to let them escape and fly away. My father and mother, quite occupied with business and anxious about my future, talked to me only about their profits or about my possible plans. They were fond of me after the manner of hard-headed, practical people. They had more reason than heart in their affection for me. I lived imprisoned in my thoughts and vibrating with my eternal sensitiveness. Now one evening, after a long walk, as I was making my way home with great strides so as not to be late, I saw a dog trotting towards me. He was a species of red spaniel, very lean, with long, curly ears. When he was ten paces away from me, he stopped. I did the same. Then he began wagging his tail, and came over to me with short steps and nervous movements of his whole body, bending down on his paws as if appealing to me, and softly shaking his head. I spoke to him. He then began to crawl along in such a sad, humble, suppliant manner that I felt the tears coming into my eyes. I approached him. He ran away. Then he came back again, and I bent down on one knee trying to coax him to approach me with soft words. At last he was within reach of my hands, and I gently and very carefully stroked him. He gained courage, gradually rose, and, placing his paws on my shoulders, began to lick my face. He followed me to the house. This was really the first being I had passionately loved, because he returned my affection. My attachment to this animal was certainly exaggerated and ridiculous. It seemed to me in a confused sort of way that we were two brothers, lost onto this earth, and therefore isolated and without defense, one as well as the other. He never again quitted my side. He slept at the foot of my bed, ate at the table in spite of the objections of my parents, and followed me in my solitary walks. I often stopped at the side of the ditch and sat down in the grass. Sam immediately rushed up, lay down at my feet, and lifted up my hand with his muzzle that I might caress him. One day toward the end of June, as we were on the road from St. Pierre de Chevreul, I saw the diligence from Paverot coming along. Its four horses were going at a gallop, with its yellow body and its imperial with the black leather hood. The coachman cracked his whip, a cloud of dust rose up under the wheels of the heavy vehicle, then floated behind, just as a cloud would do. Suddenly, as the vehicle came close to me, Sam, perhaps frightened by the noise and wishing to join me, jumped in front of it. A horse's hoof knocked him down. I saw him roll over, turn round, fall back again beneath the horse's feet, and then the coach gave two jolts, and behind it I saw something quivering in the dust of the road. He was nearly cut in two, all his intestines were hanging out, and blood was spurting from the wound. He tried to get up, to walk, but he could only move his two front paws and scratch the ground with them, as if to make a hole. 
the two others were already dead, and he howled dreadfully, mad with pain. He died in a few minutes. I cannot describe how much I felt and suffered. I was confined to my room for a month. One night my father, enraged at seeing me so affected by such a trifling occurrence, exclaimed, "'How will it be when you have real griefs, if you lose your wife or children?' His words haunted me, and I began to see my condition clearly. I understood why all the small miseries of each day assumed in my eyes the importance of a catastrophe. I saw that I was organized in such a way that I suffered dreadfully from everything, that every painful impression was multiplied by my diseased sensibility, and an atrocious fear of life took possession of me. I was without passions, without ambitions. I resolved to sacrifice possible joys in order to avoid sure sorrows. Existence is short, but I made up my mind to spend it in the service of others, in relieving their troubles and enjoying their happiness. Having no direct experience of either one or the other, I should only experience a milder form of emotion. And if you only knew how, in spite of this, misery tortures me, ravages me. But what would formerly have been an intolerable affliction has become commiseration, pity. These sorrows which cross my path at every moment I could not endure if they affected me directly. I could not have seen one of my children die without dying myself. And I have, in spite of everything, preserved such a mysterious, overwhelming fear of events that the sight of the postman entering my house makes a shiver pass every day through my veins, and yet I have nothing to be afraid of now. The Abbe Mauduit ceased speaking. He stared into the fire in the huge grate as if he, all he saw there were mysterious things, all the unknown of existence he might have passed had he been more fearless in the face of suffering. He added then in a subdued tone, I was right. I was not made for this world. The Comtesse said nothing at first, but at length, after a long silence, she remarked, For my part, if I had not my grandchildren, I believe I would not have the courage to live. And the curé rose up without saying another word. As the servants were asleep in the kitchen, she accompanied him herself to the door, which looked out on the garden, and she saw his tall shadow, lit up by the reflection of the lamp, disappearing through the gloom of night. Then she came back and sat down before the fire, and pondered over many things we never think of when we are young. End of section 60. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.